Well, good morning, friends. I want to start by uh, doing two things. Will we, uh, can we spend about 20 seconds in prayer, just a, a brief moment? And would you pray for two things? One, would you just pray for me, that God would, would help me and guide me and, and uh, work with me here, that I would work with him here? <laughs> and the second thing, last week we talked about how the enemy is at work, man. Matthew chapter 13, every time the word is sown, that he seeks to snatch that seed away so that there won't be understanding. And so can we just spend a few seconds in prayer, just silently on your own? Would you pray for me? Would you pray for uh, this word that we're hearing, that the enemy would be kept away? Father, I pray for us this morning. I pray that, uh, that you would be at work. I pray that you, would, that you would protect us from the schemes of the enemy that we are going to be discussing today. I pray that you would be at work among your people to, to receive what your word says, that we would be a church family who is shaped by your word, who have eyes to see, spiritual eyes to see, for our own sake and for the sake of one another and for the sake of a world that needs a community of vision. I pray that you would do that in this time, and I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, week two, Satan series. I want to start this week the same way we started last week with Wallace's parable. It says there are two young fish that are swimming along, and the two young fish pass an older fish, and the older fish greets the two younger fish. Hey, boys, how's the water? The two young fish keep swimming, and eventually some time goes by, and one of the younger fish looks at the other and asks, what the heck is water? The point of that parable was that some of the most significant realities to us, some of the most important realities to us, go unseen, not because they are obscure or because they are rare, but precisely because they are so all-pervasive. They are the waters that we swim in, and so sometimes we don't have the eyes to see them. And so last week, we looked at Ephesians chapter 6, and we started to look at the waters. We let Ephesians chapter 6 call our attention to the type of world that the Bible claims this creation is, that it's the type of place where spiritual forces are at work every day, where every day is spiritual, and that means that God's at work growing babies and and growing flowers and feeding birds. At the same time, there's a, a spiritual enemy, and so that means that this is hostile territory, and so we need to put on armor, we need to stand in the strength of God's might, we need to do that together. We need to have a community of vision that's willing to say something if they see something, One of the other things that we said last week is that we intend for this sermon series to be a discipleship of the eyes, that we want to remove obstacles because we have so many goofy pictures of of, of Satan and how he operates and what he looks like and how that works. And so we want to remove some of the obstacles that lead to unbelief or lead to embarrassed belief or lead to unfruitful belief. And there's probably no greater picture that messes all of that up, no greater place where the, our ability to see the combative significance in everyday life is messed up more than this picture of how Satan operates. How is it that he accomplishes what he's trying to accomplish? Does he pop up on your shoulder in a moment of decision? Right? Angel pops up on the other side and they haggle it out to figure out whether or not you're going to kick the dog or tell the lie. Not even what he's trying to accomplish. Randy will walk us through that over the next couple of weeks, but just this picture of How is it that Satan has influence? How is it, according to the Bible, that he operates? And so for help with that, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2. So you can turn there in your Bibles. You can grab the little handout that you received on the way in that has the uh, major scriptures from Ephesians that we're going to look at. Or if you want to, Mike told me this works, and we'll see, uh, on on our church's app, if you have it on your smart device, you can click on that app. 
And I'm told that down here at the bottom, there's a little tab that says sermon notes. And you can click on today's date. And down at the bottom, it has all the major scriptures that we'll use today. And then it has four of my, my look at that, my four uh, sermon points are right there. You can click on the box to the side of them, type in your notes, and then you can email yourself that entire thing as a PDF. So that's pretty cool. So if you're adventurous and tech savvy and want to try that, you can go for it. If not, you can stay in the Stone Age with me and look at this pamphlet. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this isn't your own doing, it's a gift from God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. These verses start off with this, this manner of walk, this, this uh, walking in trespasses and sins. The, the last verse talks about God creating good works that we should walk in them. If you flip the little page over that you received on the way in, there's a few other places where this theme continues in the book of Ephesians, that this, this concern for walking comes to play. And so the first two are the ones that we've already mentioned. But then in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, it says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Let your walk make sense in light of your profession, with humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, because life is protected, connected. Chapter 4, verses, verse 17, it says, now, I, now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Don't walk the way people who don't know God do. Chapter 5, verse 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Chapter 5, verse 8, for one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And finally, in chapter 5, verse 15 and 16, it says, Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. So I want to look at those verses in Ephesians, especially the ones from chapter 2, especially the the first few verses in Ephesians chapter 2. I want to give us the context, and I want to refer to some other passages. But even verses just 1, 2, and and 3, and I want those to shape our perception, our, our, our picture of how Satan operates. And I think that that'll do it in four ways. It'll give us four perspectives on how Satan operates. It'll tell us about the battle from the air, the battle on the ground, the battle in the person, and the battle over time. The battle from the air, the battle on the ground, the battle in the person, and the battle over time. 
So first, very simply, Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1 and 2, it says that each of us, our default mode is to walk in sin and trespasses, that we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. And if you're going to have trespasses and sins, there has to be something to sin against and something to trespass against. And so the picture that Ephesians is giving us is the same picture that we get all over the Bible. It's that the world is functionally split in half, that there is God and there's his agenda, that there's Satan and there's his agenda. That God's desire is for his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that Satan wants this place to literally be run like hell. That there are those who are obedient to God and that those are led by Christ. That they follow Christ as the picture of perfect obedience and as the fountainhead of all virtue and wisdom. And that there are those who walk in disobedience and that those are led by the prince of the power of the air. They follow Satan. Now listen, if you're new to the Bible, if you're still exploring Christianity and and you don't know really what this is all about, one of the things I want to make very clear is that Paul is not trying to malign non-Christians when he says that. Paul's very quick to say, I was the chief of sinners. I persecuted Christ's church. He says right there in these passages that it's by grace that I have been saved. We all once walked in those trespasses and sins. So it's not, where, who I am, what I am, is not a result, result of works. I can't boast about it. That was all God's goodness, God's mercy, God's faithfulness. But what he is trying to do is he's trying to shift your perspective on how you understand and respond to evil in this world. He's trying to help you understand that sin does not come, evil does not come in bits and pieces. It's a machine, and there's a machinist. There's somebody behind it. And probably the quickest way for us to see that, the the place where most often we see that is is places in our world where we see kind of institutionalized, systematized sin. Just evil that comes with, with moving pieces. And so you know that something wrong has happened, but when you actually try to pin the blame down on somebody, it's hard to lock down who that should be because everybody paid a part, but it's hard to find out who's actually culpable. And Paul's saying, man, in that there's there's somebody at work. There is a mastermind. And even when it comes to just your own personal I don't know, ethic, you might not be a Christian, you might not follow what the Bible says, but you have your own personal code. And the Bible says over and over again that you're even going to fall short of that, that you're going to do things, you're going to say things that will surprise you. Or maybe it's a cycle where you, you keep falling down and you get back up and you fall back down and you get back up and you fall back down and you get back up and you try and you try and try. And Paul's trying to say that somebody is tripping you up. That there's somebody else who lays snares. There's somebody else at work. And so don't get bitter at other people and, and blame them for why you are stumbling the way you are. Don't, don't beat yourself up. Don't waste your time. Understand that you have an enemy and you need to grab new resources like we talked about last week and stand in the strength of God's might. I had a conversation with a beloved brother this week who said, man, I just, it, I just finally realized that I wasn't going to stay sober until I understood that I had an enemy. I kept acting like I was the only one who was at play, and if I could just get my act together. And he said, I finally, finally understood what the Bible was saying, that I have an enemy who tempts, who lays snares. And once I finally started responding to those the way God's Word says, man, I, I'm seeing freedom. And so Paul isn't maligning those who are outside of Christ. He's trying to, to give you a way of understanding how evil and sin operates in this world, that crimes against God and humanity are always organized crime. And there, there's somebody... There's somebody behind it. The way C.S. Lewis put it is that there is, there is no neutral ground in the entire universe that every square inch, every split second is claimed by God 
encounter claimed by Satan. The question is, what does that look like? Right? That's where we get in trouble, is those goofy pictures, that Tom and Jerry stuff, right? And so I want to continue through Ephesians chapter 2. The second thing that we need to see is the, the battle on the ground. What does this actually look like when it touches ground? And in verses 1 and 2, when it says that you are walking in the trespasses and, and, and sins, it makes it synonymous with three things. It says that you are following the course of this world, that you are following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And when Paul says the spirit that is now at work, the commentators will go in two directions. It's either they'll think that the word spirit reaches back and is referring to Satan, the prince of the power of the air, which I don't, I don't necessarily like that way of understanding it because that would mean that, that Satan is at work in all of those who are disobedient, and Satan's not God. He can't be everywhere at once. He can only be at one place at one time. And so the other commentators will say that that, that term, the, the spirit that is now at work, reaches back and refers to the course of this world. So what Paul is saying, man, that, that there's, there's this, this spirit of the age, the intellectual climate, the political climate, the, the, the wisdom of this world. And he's saying, man, that's governed by Satan, that in following the course of this world, you're following your enemy by just going with the flow. And every time I think about Ephesians 2, I, I, always, think of a, I always think of a stream. Now, I, I couldn't get a stream on stage just for probably dumb reasons that they just wouldn't cooperate with me. But so we're going to do a treadmill instead. And so excuse two things. One, if I mix my metaphors a little bit, work with me. If I go from swimming to walking, from streams to paths, just work with me. The other thing is if I eat it in the course of the sermon, just say amen and we'll keep trucking. Everybody agrees? Okay. So the picture that always comes to mind whenever I think of Ephesians 2 is that there is just this stream. And that every single person alive, I'm going to slow it down just in case, that every single person alive steps into planet Earth and, and there's this flow to things, right? That the waters flow in a certain direction. What the heck is water, Right? That there are just these waters that we live in and that they're going in a certain direction. And the flow of those waters has been dictated by Satan, has been influenced by Satan. So if if you go with the flow, you are going with Satan's flow. And so Satan doesn't need to sit on your shoulder. He doesn't need to whisper in your ear. If you're waiting for Satan to, like, if you're waiting to have one of these, like, you know, visionary moments where you see Satan on your shoulder, that's like waiting for a terrorist wearing a shirt that says terrorist to put down a bomb in a box labeled bomb. The enemy's slicker than that, right? That's not how that works. And he can only be in one place in one, at one time. And so why waste his energies and efforts on small fish, right? That's one of the reasons why, why the New Testament often uses the language of, of rulers and authorities and powers and, and princes, right? Because just like last week, we talked about babies growing in the womb and flowers growing, and we talked about birds feeding and saying, man, there's a spiritual reality behind that because every day is spiritual, like God's at work there. In the same way, we also said, man, the enemy is at work. And, and one of the realities that we have to see is, man, when you look at, at political powers, you look at societal powers, you look at cultural powers, that there is a a spiritual reality behind that reality. There's a struggle there for influence. And over and over again, that's how the Bible describes Satan's work, that he only shows up, listen, he only shows up a precious handful of times in the Bible. And all the Bible superstitions, if you have a toothache, Satan's crawled up into your tooth. No, if you look at what the Bible actually says, if you read the thing, He only shows up, he's mentioned different places, but he only shows up a precious handful of times, and every time it's a big fish. Goes after Adam and Eve in the garden because, man, if he can can have a, a point of influence there, that'll totally change the course of this world. 
Aren't things different according to the Bible because of what went down in the garden that day? You see him going after King David, right? Because David was the, the king of Old Testament Israel, and he's the, he's the king over the one people who knew who the one true God was, who was in relationship with him. And man, if, if I can take that guy down and take that group down, that, that means something for the rest of the kingdoms of this world, right? He goes after Jesus and his temptation, right? Because certainly if I can take that guy down, that means something for the course of this world, Right? And so over and over again, the, the way the Bible portrays Satan's work is not to go, over, go, go after each and every person to sit on show. He's trying to influence the influencers. He's going after big fish. Can I show you how the Gospels do this? Because one of the, listen, probably one of the things that, uh, one of the things if, you, if you've uh, you know, been in academia for a little while, one of the things that they often say is don't read books, read people. If you want to be savvy in technology, don't read every book you can find on technology. Find out who the voices are who just really have their mind wrapped around the thing and, and, and read those guys. And listen, I want to understand the world, so I read Matthew, I read Paul, I read Luke, I read John. And these guys are sharp, but one of my frustrations is oftentimes we approach these books and we assume that because they're ancient and we're modern, they're pre-scientific and we're scientific, that they're just, they're just simple and dumb and we're so, we're so intelligent. And so we come in and we often give a, a, a very simple reading to these passages, simple reading to these books, and when we walk away with simple conclusions, we assume it's because they're simple writers and we're not simple readers. This is how this shows up in Matthew's gospel. Matthew only pulls back the curtain once in his gospel. Remember Abraham Kuyper last week, that thin curtain that, that hides the world of spirits from our eyes? He only pulls back the curtain once. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus' temptation. And you see a lot of things there. We can't explore all of them, but a couple of the things that you see is Satan's influence. The same thing that Ephesians 2 is talking about, that, that Satan has, has this influence over the kingdoms of the world. The way that Luke's account of the temptation narrative goes, Satan shows all of the kingdoms to, to, of the world to Jesus in one shot, and he says, all of these have been given to me, and I give them to whoever I want. I give them to the movers, the shakers, the policymakers, the culture makers. As long as, they'll do things, as long as they'll do things my way, as long as they'll do things in a way that are marked by, by selfishness and what feels good in the moments, as long as they work with the flow of this world, the intellectual climate, as long as they go with the flow, I give them to whoever I want. And in both temptation accounts, he says, man, if you'll just, if you'll just bend the knee, I'll, I'll give them to you right now. And that's significant in Matthew's gospel because Matthew's gospel ends with Jesus raised from the dead and saying that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. I'm that guy now. That's after the cross and resurrection. Man, Satan is saying, if you, you, don't, need to, you don't need to go that route. If you just, you just bend the knee right now, I'll give them to you right now. Just do things my way. So one, we have another, another testament to this type of influence that Satan has in this world. But the second thing that you see, or one of the second of many things that you see, is that Satan calls Jesus' identity into question. He says, if you're the son of God, why don't, you, why don't you turn these stones into bread? And of course, Jesus passes the test where Adam failed his temptation. Jesus, as the, the truer and greater Adam, passes the test. As Israel failed in their test in the wilderness, Jesus, as the truer and greater Israel, passes his test. And then the curtain closes, and that's it. Matthew's not obsessed. He's not superstitious. He's not Sheldon Cooper's mom. He doesn't linger there for very long. He just shows you a brief episode, and then you move on. And you go on to chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. You go on to Jesus' parables, you go on to Jesus' mighty deeds, his last supper with the disciples, his 
arrest, trial, and crucifixion. And in Matthew chapter 27, Matthew gives us a peek. He, he recalls an account of what was going on at the foot of the cross. Now imagine you are a, a young Jewish shopkeeper, and you wake up on Friday morning, and you know it's the, the day before Sabbath, and you need to get things ready because there's no work on the Sabbath day. And so you, you get up, and you're going to your shop so you can take care of a couple of things and, and close things down. And on the way there, you pass some crosses, and you, you, you notice, you see what you've seen so many times before, that there are some young Jewish men hanging on Roman crosses. It's a picture of everything that's wrong with the world. That we're the, we're the people of God who have his temple and his Torah. That, and then we have these overlords that are ruling over us. And once again, our young men are hanging on their crosses. And you look and you notice, I think that's Jesus. And people said, man, we, we thought that he was a mighty prophet. Some people thought he was the Messiah. And you're looking down and you see some women crying. And you see some soldiers casting lots and dividing garments. And one of the things that Matthew says in Matthew chapter 27 is that as people were passing by, people were mocking and people were deriding him. And one of the things that people said as they passed by, you're this Jewish shopkeeper, you're looking, and as somebody passes by, somebody says, you're the son of God, why don't you come off the cross? And keeps walking. And if you're that young Jewish shopkeeper, maybe you, I don't know, maybe you're welled up with sympathy. You say, man, he's having a hard enough time. Just leave him alone. Or maybe you're disappointed. Yeah, man, I thought... We thought he was going to be the guy. We thought that he was going to be the one to, to bring salvation and redemption, but instead he goes to a cross. We thought he was going to be the one to, to establish God's, God's kingdom on earth. Or maybe what the guy says resonates with you, and you look and you say, yeah, man, if you're going to talk a big game, you've got to be able to back it up because Rome doesn't play. And you go to your shop. And if you're that young Jewish shopkeeper standing at the foot of the cross, hearing that mocking voice as they pass, you might not have loaded any significance. You might not have heard in the mundane and the ordinary. You might not have seen what was going on there. But if you're a reader of Matthew's gospel, you hear those words, come off the cross if you are the Son of God. And those words echo back past Jesus' Lord's Last Supper, past Jesus' mighty deeds. If you are the Son of God, come off that cross. It echoes back past Jesus' parables. It echoes back past the Sermon on the Mount, back into the desert. If you're the Son of God... Why don't you turn these stones into bread? What Matthew's trying to help us understand is that you probably will not encounter Satan in this otherworldly apocalyptic moment where you will encounter him is in the mocking, and the scoffing, and the wisdom of the everyday. That he's, he's governing the, the, the course of this world. That he's, he's governing the, the waters that we swim in. And so Satan can do a lot without sitting on your shoulder. All he has to do is get the idea out there, and, and we'll romanticize it, we'll legislate it, we'll make art about it. No right, no wrong, no rules for me, now I'm free. Somebody's got a nine-year-old girl. That's frozen. <laughs> Listen, no right, no wrong, no rules for me. That's a, that's a long stretch from let your conscience be your guide. Anybody remember Pinocchio? Man, all he, all he has to do is just, he just needs a touch point. He just, needs a, he just needs to get the idea out there. And if he gives it to the course of this world, it'll just perpetuate. It'll just gain momentum. And that puts us in a very precarious situation. That helps us to see the battle in the person. That means that, that the battle line between God's agenda and Satan's agenda runs down the middle of each one of us. And that means that every split second, every square inch, you can walk for one team or the other. You can contribute to one agenda or the other. 
Peter's a fantastic picture of this. Listen, this, look at what Matthew is doing. Halfway between those two accounts, the only two places where if you are the Son of God comes out of anybody's mouth in Matthew. Those two places, see that point he's making? Right in the middle of those two accounts, we see Matthew chapter 16, one of the most important chapters in the Bible, where Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, who do people say that I am? And say, well, some people, some people say that you're a prophet. Some people say that you're this guy, you're that guy. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter looks at him and says, we believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says, right answer, bingo. Not only that, but I'm going to build my entire church on that. Everybody who comes to me, who comes into my kingdom, will come by way of that profession. And then right after that, he starts to, he starts to tell his disciples that he's going to have to suffer. He's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to, he's going to die. And listen, you're Peter, and you just took the step, right? You just took the great step. You are the Christ, the Son of God. That is the right answer to which the entire Bible points. Jesus is Lord, but he hears Jesus talk about his sufferings, and in that moment, he goes back to his old way of thinking. He goes back to to all the assumptions that he had about what the Messiah would do, that Messiahs don't suffer, Messiahs conquer. Messiahs don't get humiliated, Messiahs you know, they're exalted. And so in that moment, even though Peter had just taken that big first step in God's kingdom, he goes back to that old way of thinking and he pulls Jesus aside. He says, you're not going to do that. Far be it from you. That's, that's never going to happen. And somebody in this room knows what Jesus said back. Get behind me, Satan. It's like, say, whoa, Satan though? I mean, Peter just had the right answer. I mean, he just gave the statement that Christ would build his entire church on. And in a space of like four sentences, all of a sudden, it's get behind me, Satan. Jesus says, you're a hindrance to me in this moment. Because you have set your mind not on the things of God, but on the things of man. See what Jesus is doing? It's the same thing that, that Ephesians chapter 2 is saying. It's, those words came from somewhere. Just like that scoffer and that mocker at the foot of the cross, those words came from somewhere. Far be it from you. That'll never happen. Those words came from there, and then it was, it was not born of a wisdom, a will, an agenda of my Father. Man, those other words? Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. You didn't get that from the course of this world. If you flowed if you went with the flow, if you soaked in the, the wisdom of this age, you would never come to that conclusion. But, but my Father has revealed that to you. Those words came from somewhere. But now two seconds later, no, those, those didn't. And it's this great picture that, that listen, even though, we, even though we, we, we follow Christ, even those of us who, who say Jesus is Lord, we can take these steps in the right direction. We can, we can say these things in the very next moment. We can go back to going with the flow. That you can say something, do something that not, is not born of a wisdom, a will, or agenda that comes from God. So one second it's, yeah, Jesus is Lord. And the next second it's, I, I, I don't know, you, you got to do what makes you happy. One, one moment it's, Jesus is Lord. And the, the next second it's, you know what this country really needs. And listen, if you want to, in an election year, if you want to see how much people have been soaked in the wisdom of this world, in the current intellectual climate, just wait to see what they say this country needs, because usually that sentence doesn't end with wisdom and self-control, right? And so, man, we can have this moment where we're saying, oh, yeah, Jesus is Lord. I, you know, this is born of, of God's own mind and God's own heart. And in the next second, we can say, oh, I don't know. 
we have irreconcilable differences. What, like you and God? God's answer to irreconcilable differences was to literally love you to death. Man, one second we can, we can say things that are born of God's mind. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And the, the next moment we can fall back into that old way of thinking because the flow is Satan's flow. And if you go with the flow, you're going downstream. It's this picture that, that we have to look at every single split second because we can go from in one moment speaking God's truth to floating downstream. And so we have, to be, we have to be careful how we walk. That's one of the reasons why the, 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 back, of the, uh, the back of your hand out there, those other passages in, in Ephesians, why it's constantly calling attention to your walk. It's saying, man, because the good news is you can move from death to life. But the caution is you can still walk funny. So, man, you have to be, you have to be careful how you walk because all of the, the momentum of our lives have been going in the other direction. So as soon as you turn, you have to be careful. You have to be watchful. You have to, you have to take a look at how you're running because everything in the Christian life is backwards. Listen, everything in the Christian life is, is backwards. You're, you're running a race. You're, you're swimming upstream trying to follow, uh, I don't know, trying to follow a manner of life where in order to be exalted, you have to be humbled. Where in order to fulfill yourself, you have to forget yourself. In order to gain your life, you have to lose it. Where Satan would have you, man, Satan would have you desire for yourself so much that you are willing to get at even other people's expenses. The, the, man, the, the pattern we're called to is that you have such big desires for other people that you are willing to work to get it even at your own expense. Everything in the Christian life is backwards. And you have to understand that or you, will, you, you won't make it. That's why Jesus says count the cost because all of the current is going in one direction. And when you repent, when you turn the rest of your life is swimming upstream because you are going against the flow. It's, it's, it's work. It's an exercise of the will. It's an exercise of the mind. It's an exercise of the imagination because we're following a king who did everything backwards. Can you imagine if Jesus would have just kind of gone with the, the, the wisdom of this world, the flow of this world? I'm not going there. It's dangerous. I, I have the wealth of heaven. It's, it's pretty unreasonable to expect that I would give all of this up for, for them. They don't even want me. I mean, it's, it's, that would be a nice gesture, but that's unreasonable. I don't want to be friends with them. They, they don't even want me. They're nothing like me. One of the phrases that my sister used last week when we were talking about some of this is that Christians have friendships that aren't fun. Because, man, the, 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 the way of things, the natural course of this world is you find people who are like you, who, you know, who make you laugh, who make you feel good about yourself, and you, you stick with them. But the pattern of Jesus, the backwards pattern of Jesus, is he reaches out in costly friendship for the benefit of the other. There's nothing that, that Christ gains by friendship with us. Man, we follow a Savior who did everything backwards, and so we have to look and we have to be very careful about each step and how we're walking, and, and, and we have to be around a, a group of people who can look at us and say, hey, you're walking kind of funny. When you took that step, you're walking funny. When you said that thing, you were walking kind of funny. When you moved into that relationship, you were walking kind of funny. I'll paraphrase one, one guy who, who, who write, is a Christian writer who says, the, the notion that people would become more like Christ by doing what comes naturally, by doing what comes naturally, would be hilarious if it wasn't so prevalent. Because we think it's just that first step. Yep, Jesus is 
the Christ. All right, ran the Christian race. Meanwhile, you were just floating back downstream. So we have to be careful how we walk. We need to walk together so we can notice and say, hey, you're, you're walking kind of funny. Man, we need the word. We need God's word to show us what those counterintuitive steps are. The, the wisdom of God, the Bible says, is foolishness to men. But the wisdom of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. So we have to look in the word and say, what are those, those steps I'm called to take each moment, inch by inch, every square inch, every split second, fighting to swim against the current? The other reason why we need the word is, man, just for hope. Because, man, as you're swimming and swimming and swimming against the current, it's very easy to lose heart. And that can happen one of two ways. One, you will just constantly see people who are just floating by. And you think, you know what? That looks real easy. I really don't know why I am beating myself to death, swimming against the current. They look like they have it just fine. Never mind that the psalm says that their end is destruction. Never mind that Ephesians 2 says that that's headed for wrath. Man, that looks real easy. And the other thing is, man, it just, it, it seems sometimes like nothing changes. It's easy to lose heart. I had this epiphany in a Chipotle a couple weeks ago. Listen, I was standing in line, and they were, you know, Chipotle was out of pork for a little while because they only get their meat and their vegetables from certain farms that handle their products certain ways and all that jazz. And I was standing there in line, and I was thinking, you know, the, the, the world that I live in right now is, is run like hell to such a degree that if I want to eat a cheeseburger, that means that somewhere in the world, somewhere in this nation, there is just a lame cow being mistreated and mishandled in a way that doesn't suggest that this is the creation of a creator. That if I want to eat a chicken nugget, that means that somewhere there is this really small building with just a bajillion chickens crammed together in pitch black dark, wing deep in their own waist. I went on slaveryfootprint.org this week. I filled out a profile. And basically it said that just because I live in a world, just because I, I eat food and wear clothes and have a couple of tech devices, that I probably have had six slaves work for me. Man, that's, it's easy to lose heart when you, when you look at the world around you, and it is run like hell to such a degree that everything you do seems to add to the machine. And that's why we need to see the fourth thing, which is the battle over time. In, in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, when it talks about the course of this world, the word course should actually be translated age, or it's more literally translated age. It says course just so you get uh, at a general reading a better idea of what it's saying, the course of this world. It actually says the age of this world. When we're talking about like how old the world is. No, in, in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul talks about how, how Christ has received authority and has been exalted over every power, both in this age and the age to come. And that's how the Bible splits up human history into two ages, that there's, there's this age, this, this present age, this present evil age where things are run like hell, and there's this, this age to come where God's kingdom will come and God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That there's this present evil age where sin and death and foolishness and brokenness dominate. And there's an age to come where there will be no more sin, no more death, no more suffering, where God will wipe away every tear. And Jesus is the, the picture, the, the proof, and the key to that age. Jesus is the picture of that age because his wisdom, his compassion, his love, his, his humility and self-sacrifice, his dignity is the picture of what that age will be like. That in Jesus, we have a, a picture of what God is molding his people into. 
Jesus is the proof of that age because one of the hopes of God's age to come is that he would reverse the the great enemy of of God's good but broken creation, that he would reverse death and that he would raise his his faithful people. And so when when the New Testament writers look at what happened with Jesus, they didn't see some odd event that happened in this age. They saw the characteristic event of the age to come. It just happened early for one guy. And so that means that already the, the, the grass of God's age to come, the grass of God's new creation is already growing up through the cracks in the old. And you can see it in the resurrection of Jesus. You can see it in a transformed heart. You can see it in a transformed life. The resurrection of Jesus Christ means that we have a lame duck enemy, that we have a lame duck adversary. If you're not political, a lame duck is when you like elect the guy in November and you have to wait till January to get him. And so between November and December, you have the old guy who's still sitting in the chair, but he knows his time is short. He knows his influence is waning. Jesus raised, raises and says, I, I have all authority on heaven and earth. He's saying, you have a lame duck adversary. His time is short. Because that age is coming. Here's the proof. And Jesus is the key to that new age. It says that by grace you have been saved. By by grace you have been redeemed. And that grace was executed on the cross where Jesus took the entire machine on, where Jesus raged against the entire machine. You realize that the cross is the point of intersection between violence, imperial brutality, scornful organized religion, and abandonment by friends. The whole thing so that he can make a way. By grace, through faith, and that faith is in Jesus Christ. And and Paul says in Ephesians 1, right before these verses that we use today, that he's praying that their eyes would be open to see the hope that you have. Because hope is the only thing that's going to keep you on the course, that's going to keep you swimming against the current, that's going to give you the, the hope and the strength to fix your eyes on something that you know for certain is coming and to keep walking, to keep swimming against the current. And so, man, we as, as Christ's people, we swim against that current. We, we walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling to which we've been called. We walk in love and patience and humility. We love one another. Because as we do, we give a picture and a bit of a foretaste and a signpost to an age that absolutely is coming. And we do that as we fix our eyes on Jesus and we're careful how we walk. Let's pray that we do it. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you that everything you do is backwards. Woe on us if you did things the way the course of this world does things. We thank you for for Jesus who gave up the wealth of heaven so that we might become rich. We thank you for his pattern of faithfulness, for the, the, the wellspring that he is of wisdom and virtue, may we draw on that. I pray that, like Paul prayed in Ephesians 1, that you would open our eyes to see the hope that we have, that we wouldn't lose heart because it seems like people who are going with the flow have it easier. I pray that we wouldn't lose heart because it seems like things will never change. I pray that we would sink ourselves in the hope that the resurrection of your son holds out, that you will move, that one last time you will shake things up and it will mean heaven on earth where we put all of our faith in your son so that we can participate. Even now, I pray that you would shape us into the type of people who are strong, who swim against the current, and in so doing, give the world a grand picture of what it is that you offer in Jesus Christ. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.